Last time I preached from a stool, uh, I did pretty good, didn't I? I did okay. I didn't blow out my voice till the end. Um, so somebody said, you did great until you stood up. When you, when, you stood, when you stood up, you lost it right there. And that's probably very true. Okay, so um, how's everybody doing? Aren't you happy to be here? Isn't this fun? Isn't this cool? Okay, so did you like my sermon title? How many of you saw it? How many of you saw it? How many of you saw my sermon title out there on Facebook? You have to put up your hand and hold your hand up, and you actually have to answer this question if you really did. No, 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 no. Hand up and hold up. Ah, all right, good. Okay. All right, so just trying to provoke somebody, you know. I don't know. Having fun. Okay, so uh, sermon title, One World Government in the United Nations. Doesn't that sound like fun? So what I've got, though, I've got guys, uh, I've got uh, a team right afterwards. They're going to hit you up on the way out the door right near the hot tamales with the mark of the beast. And so you'll be prepared for this one world government and everything will be fine. No, seriously... Oh, I like that. That graphic is so good. Oh. Seriously, though, we, you know, we're in a tumultuous time. We're in a crazy time, and there's stuff going on, and there's, you know, riots all over the place, and Trump haters everywhere, and, you know, and uh, people just uh, freaking out over kind of what's going on politically and what have you. And you can kind of see this clash of stuff going on. Have you been noticing? Anybody been paying attention? Yeah. So we get this clash of stuff going on, but my heart is so full of hope about the future, and uh, and and I know though I know that 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 part of and I, I heard you know I heard something the other day more statistics. So lots of times our focus is brought to the negative, but I heard more statistics the other day about. Crime way down across the United States and abortions way down across the United States and this and that and other things that really haven't come through legislation, things that have come through something going on in the heart. So we see a lot of yuck. We hear about a lot of yuck. We think everybody's going to hell in a handbasket. But actually, I think God is up to some really cool stuff. So not only do we see revival in the nations, and we know revival's going on in Europe. There's little uh, embers of revival starting in Europe. There's people gathering in stadiums, up to 10,000 people gathering. Lou Engle, our great prayer warrior of the U.S., of whom we just read his book, The Jesus Fast, right? Uh, Lou Engle is, I mean, he's barely got time to speak in the U.S. anymore because he's being called to Europe uh, for these, gra- these huge gatherings of prayer and fasting. And people are... The church is awakening. The bride is awakening. The bride is coming alive. The bride is becoming glorious. And so there's, and I I want us to focus on the good. I want us to, but I want us to also see that we've got this crazy partnership with the Lord, that this is happening as he progressively develops this partnership with the church, with the bride, right? Right? Fact is, I mean, if we just uh, Ephesians three ten has got to be you know one of my one of the crazy ones we could go to, but we won't. 
Because I, I gave the guys already 10 pages of notes this morning. So we will never get to where we're going. But anyway, we're going to have fun. Let's go to the last verse in the sermon. The last passage in the sermon. These poor guys back in the projection deal, I give them you know, a, print, a printout. And then we, you know, I just confuse them royally. So, Lord, we bless the projection team with resilient flexibility. Isaiah 9.1, you know, it's one of my favorite passages. And I was reading it, and I was thinking about, okay, can we tell the people that we're actually into this right now? Is there any way to tell the people this is going on? Because I, I really, we, we've got this whole confusing thing going on. Where lots of times when we hear scriptures about the last days, it's always about gloom and doom, and it's always preparing us to expect gloom and doom. Now, I want us to be people of prayer. You're going to hear about that this morning. I want us to be people of power and people of the greatness of God and people who are devoted to God, people who are zealous, people who are passionate. But many times when we're hearing about the season we're in, we're hearing about the last days, it's always framed around a very gloomy, doomy kind of perspective. Right? So a lot of times when I'm seeing these passages, then I'm trying to say, you know, you know, Holy Spirit, can we can we show Oh, that's the wrong one. Second to the last. Isaiah nine. Sorry, team. Second to the last. But we're gonna get to that one in a minute. So I'm trying to you know, I'm like, can we show the people that we're actually living in this now? Because if we can show you scripturally that we're living in something now, then hopefully that'll encourage your faith. Anybody need a faith boost out there? Okay. So Isaiah 9.1, it's like one of my favorite passages, you know that. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, this too is a metaphor in that there will be no more gloom and no more anguish for the Gentiles. On the other side of the Jordan, the gospel will come to the Gentiles. All right. Then he goes on. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Well, who in the world, in Isaiah's day, who in the world was walking in darkness? The Gentiles. The Gentile nations, the non-Jewish people, were walking in darkness, but they were about to see. Isaiah's prophesying there's going to come a day where they will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Now, this is also Isaiah 60 and 61, these passages that we just love, right? You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They shall be glad in your presence as with gladness of a harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Any spoil dividers today? That was the weakest shout of spoil division I've ever heard in my life. For you shall break the yoke, you, God, you shall break the yoke, the Lord shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. Now that, that's kind of cool, because the battle of Midian was the battle in Judges 6, the battle of Gideon. 
So th- this, is, this is really cool stuff. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire, for a child. Now here's the verse. That, now we move into that which has been made very popular by Handel. In 1742, he wrote the Messiah. Performed it, actually, I think he wrote it in 1741, but uh, he performed it for the first time in Ireland in 1742. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Woo! And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Now, I love to emphasize there will be no end to the increase. Everybody say increase. That means this is like a stock that never goes down. This is like the dream stock to buy into. This is like... It's, it's always boom and never bust. There will be no end to the increase. And, and, and you've got to know this. There has never been an end to an in, his increase. And you can prophesy an end to his increase all you want to, but I'm going to tell you, you will be wrong and you'll miss out. So it's more favorable that you're mouth gets in agreement with his increase. Hallelujah. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So I'm asking the Lord, can we, um, can we identify when this came to pass or when this began to come to pass? Matthew 4.12. Let's go to Matthew 4.12. So this is the beginning of the Lord's ministry toward the end of Matthew 3, the beginning of Matthew 4. This is where he shows up at like 30 years of old. And uh, John is baptizing everybody, and John knows that he's present. And John says, in our presence right now is he of whom I've been preaching about, of whom I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes And then pretty soon Jesus emerges out of the crowd and says, uh, I need to be baptized. And John says, no, I can't do it. And Jesus says, yes, you must for all things to be fulfilled. And what we were seeing, we were seeing a transition from one prophetic realm to another, from one season to another, from one, one, the, the, the age of the law, the age of Moses to the age of grace. And there had to be a transition. And what we were seeing is actually a transition from Elijah to Elisha. So the word says that actually John was the Elijah to come. That's why Herodias had him She was the Jezebel of that age. So this is a metaphoric picture as well. And Jesus was the double portion of Elisha who would, by the power of the Spirit, take down the Jezebel spirit that was controlling the nations. Matthew Matthew 4 and 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. By the way, this is is, uh, immediately following... 
the Holy Spirit descending on him. He's baptized in the Holy Spirit. There's a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is, this is the beginning of his ministry. He came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when was Isaiah 9 fulfilled? Right there. We don't, have to, we, we don't have to wait for the rapture. We do not have to wait for some other day, for the, the, the lordship of Jesus, the rule of Jesus, the, the power of Jesus to be manifested, or for Jesus to begin to, for us to begin to see that right now, that was the beginning of the government shall be upon his shoulders. And of the increase of his government of peace, there shall be no. Somebody got it right here. There shall be no. Of the what of his government of peace? Of the increase. So this is the one world government that I'm really excited about. I'm not looking for the Antichrist. First John 4 says the Antichrist has been present for a long time. He's running around all the time. It's a spiritual power. I'm not looking for the Antichrist, though there was one that appeared as a type of the Antichrist in the generation that Jesus spoke of. Okay? Um, us today, we, we don't have that concern, and I want you to know that. We don't have that concern. Let's talk about who is Jesus, because I want to really emphasize what, what has really blown me away recently is Jesus the man. Now, for a long time, I've been talking to you about Psalm 115, verse 16. That the earth belongs, you know, uh, and let's see if I've got it so I can just read it so I don't mess it up. It's behind me. <gasps> the heavens are the heavens of the Lord. But the earth he has given to the sons of men. So for a long time, I've been talking to you out of that verse because that verse has paralleled many of the things that we've tried to teach you here is that you have responsibility here. You have a leasehold agreement here. You have power here. You have authority here. That you have a sphere of influence here. That you have sovereignty in the earth here. You have sovereignty over your space here, right? Yes? Um, And it's like a leasehold agreement. There's several passages about this. And we've often talked to you about this. And it's good for us to grasp this principle of the leasehold agreement, which comes initially out of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is where, Genesis 1, and maybe we could go there. These guys are faster than I am. Genesis 1, 28, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
is what he said over Adam and Eve, the two of them, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gave them authority over the earth. This was the initiation. This was the beginning of the leasehold agreement, yes? And as long as, as long as the tenants have as long as the tenants have the leasehold, then they have a certain realm of influence over that which they have jurisdiction until that period, until the lease period ends. How many of you know that? We had some pretty strong uh, lease laws, tenant laws in Washington State. But what's really been provoking me recently is that Jesus... And I got this revelation. It might not be a revelation to you. I don't know. But what really has been provoking me recently is how that Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, is the exalted man. Now, I've been trying to absorb that. I've been, I've been trying to soak in that and uh, trying to get the full implication of that because when it started hitting me with like waves of revelation from the Lord, it started affecting the way that I pray, the way that I see things, even though I thought, well, I've been doing pretty good. Missed a good time to laugh right there. Anyway, I thought I'd been doing, I thought I'd been doing really good. But then all at once, you know, this revelation is hitting me and I'm like, oh my goodness, there's so much more. Because he's been hitting me with this thing about, because if Jesus is the exalted man, I want you to see this. We're going to look at a couple of verses here. But if Jesus is the exalted man, then when we look at Psalm 115.16, for instance, let's go back to that. When we look at that, then all at once we see that, that Jesus, this is what Jesus, this is why Jesus had to come as a man. And this is what gives Jesus this supreme place in the earth of not only rule and dominion, but of leadership, of leadership. Like when the Lord says something about the earth, when he says something about where we're going, when he says something about the future, when he says something about God's will, when he testifies about what God has in mind, that should be something we really pay attention to, not out of his divinity, out of his manhood. Because he is the exalted man. Now, am I trying to say that he's not divine? No, no, no. We're not, we're not getting to that. Obviously, he's fully divine and he's fully man. But he had to be fully man. And Philippians 2 tells us very clearly that he stripped himself of his divinity that he might rescue, that he might redeem, that he might be a high priest, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 7, that he might be a high priest who fully identifies with everything that we've ever felt. He had to feel everything we've ever felt that he might be a high priest that would fully represent us before the Father. So he had to come and walk in humanity that he might fully represent us before the Father as an intercessor. He's our high priest. He's this intercessor who represents us, right? Hebrews 7 says that uh, every high priest needs to sympathize with the ones that they represent This is why he had to go through so much of of what he had to go through. 
And so even, even before the throne, he is there fully man and fully divine. And he represents us in his humanity. He doesn't represent us in his divinity. And the blessing that God has poured out upon us as believers, the inheritance that is ours, all of that, it's not ours because Jesus is there in his divinity twisting God's arm. He is there in his humanity qualifying on our behalf. He qualifies for every blessing on our behalf. Because in his humanity, he was perfect and without sin. And so he has ascended to the throne to represent us, humans, that God would pour every blessing upon him in his humanity. And when we trust and hide ourselves in him by faith, then we become partakers of that which God pours out on Jesus. So the reason God's pouring out goodness on you is not because you're good. It's because you're hidden in him who is good. You're hidden there by faith. You're hidden there by believing. You're hidden by trusting. And he's not pouring it out on the divine one. He's pouring it out on Jesus the Son. By the way, this is why Jesus had this title. And this title, he bore this title. And this title was, it was very important that we recognize this title throughout his time here that he was the Son of Man. Why did he bear the title of Son of Man? Because we had to know God was trying to actually teach us theology in his title that he came as a human that he might purchase, redeem, restore human, humanity, that he might overcome the devil on behalf of humans. Yes? So who is Jesus? Uh, he, number one, he's the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 1.15. We're going to go to the top of the sermon. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Which is kind of crazy. I'm like, what is that all about? The firstborn of all creation? I thought Adam was the firstborn of all creation. So this is interesting, and, and this really deserves a lot of theological treatment that we can't give it today. But what we know out of 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-five is that Jesus is the last Adam, and he, as the last Adam, is a life-giving spirit. So the first Adam was not a life-giving spirit. He was a created soul who had a spirit, but the last Adam is a life-giving spirit, 1 Corinthians 15.45. So God considers him the firstborn of all creation as the last Adam. That is, he is the one who will give life to creation. He gave life to creation, and he gives life to creation now. But let's keep on going. For by him were all things created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and for him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So he's the firstborn of all creation. Number two, he's the victorious man. I want us to read 1 Timothy 2. And we'll just kind of meditate on a few of these. Is this okay? 
First Timothy 2, 1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for all kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The what? The what? The man, Christ Jesus. Now, the emphasis is there on purpose. The Bible wants you to see it's a man representing you. The last Adam, it's a man, it's a human representing you. This is extremely important. Who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth and not lying. And as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray lifting up holy hands without wrath and without dissension or without doubting. Number three, he's the perfect son, Hebrews 5, 5. For also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, in the days of his what? In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety or his reverence, another translation says, or another translation says because of his fear, his submission to Father. And although he was a son, verse 8, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Having been made perfect, he became to all who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now again, I just, I'm trying to emphasize to you that he's there as a man. Now the reason I want to emphasize to you that he's there as a man is again that we see the heavens are the Lord's but the earth he has given to the sons of men. Who's the chief of the sons of men? Who is the chief of the sons of men? Who is the chief of the sons of men? This is why he's worthy to be called Lord. This is why he's Lord. He is the chief of the sons of men. He is supreme. He is above all others. This also has given him access and authority over and in the earth. What he says goes. He is the supreme ruler. He, of the increase of his government, of peace, there shall be no end. He is the supreme son of man. He's the great intercessor. We've read that Hebrews 4, 14. I'm going to move through that and not read it. Hebrews 7, 14 as well. He's the double portion Elijah. I referred to that, Matthew eleven thirteen, for all of the prophets and the law prophesied until John, Matthew eleven thirteen, And if you were willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Luke 1, 17, 
And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. But Jesus, therefore, was the Elisha to come. By the way, Jesus was a prophet. Have you thought of Jesus as a prophet? Elijah, Elijah, we would see as like this supreme prophet. But Elisha said, because Jezebel was not defeated under your anointing, I need a double portion. So Elisha becomes the metaphoric picture of the supreme prophetic voice of the Old Testament. John becomes like a reincarnation, though we don't believe in reincarnation, right? But it was a reappearance. It was a, he was John, but he was a prophetic picture of what Malachi prophesied in chapter 4. So he's, he's giving us a picture that there's going to come an Elijah again before the terrible day of the Lord. And so now the Bible gives us this picture that that metaphor was fulfilled in John, that John was that picture. That means the metaphor of Elisha is fulfilled in Jesus. I don't know if we think about this, but Jesus was a prophet. No one saw better than Jesus. He knew the hearts of people that just walked up to him. He knew the heart of God. He could understand. He could, and, and this is him operating in his humanity under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He had knowledge of what was happening in the hearts of men, and he had knowledge of the heart of God. He was the supreme prophet. Revelation 19.10 says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He's testifying today. He's not just testifying over your life. He's not just testifying over your, your book and what God's written about you, but he's testifying concerning the future. He's testifying concerning all that pertains to government because he is the rightful. He is the rightful Lord over all government, right? So I, I want us to see this, that Jesus... Jesus is a prophet. He's the supreme He's the supreme prophet of this new millennial, this new age, this new season that we live in. He declared that John was John was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, but he declared that the common New Testament believer is greater than John. Why? Because prophets, prophets would see from God. They would have a visitation from God. God would minister to them. They would see or hear from God. Then they would proclaim or announce that which they saw. They were God's mouthpiece. Amos chapter 3 verse 7 says that God does nothing unless he first shows his prophets. Why would God do nothing unless he first showed his prophets? Because the heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he's given to the sons of men. So if God wants to get his influence into the earth before Jesus, 
he would visit prophets, those who were yielded, those who were called, those who were resiliently flexible and willing to proclaim what he showed them. It could have been revelation. It could have been correction. By the way, Jesus being supreme prophet, has he ever corrected you? Shouldn't he have a right to? He's looking into God's will concerning you, and maybe you're headed on uh, uh, left at an intersection, and, he, and, and you're supposed to go right. Isn't it all right if he gives you a little corrective nudge? Wouldn't that be all right? So prophets, this is interesting. Surely the Lord does nothing. Everybody say nothing. That's crazy. Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Second Chronicles 20.20 says, trust the prophets, believe the prophets, listen to the prophets, and succeed. Who is the chief prophet? Jesus is the chief prophet. He is the prophetic voice. He's the prophetic leader. He's the prophetic gift. He is the, prof- he is the supreme one in the prophetic realm. Jesus, the man, is right now seated, Hebrews 1, 13, and just, you know, we could go on and on. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Don't you think he knows what's going on? Don't you think he knows what the future is? He is also supreme over every mountain of culture. He is supreme over media. He is supreme over government. He's supreme over education. He is supreme over every area of government. And you are his body. You are the body of Christ. Last I checked, the mouth resides within the body. Fact is, crazy thing, last time I checked, even the shoulders reside within the body. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. That means we, the body, bear responsibility of government. And he, the perfect man at the right hand of the Father, who rightfully is the Lord over every sphere of culture and every mountain of society, he, at the right hand of the Father, has the, has the voice of the Father, the heart of the Father, the mind of the Father. He's hearing all that Father's got in mind, and he is the rightful leader. And I'm telling you that he now releases the spirit of prophecy upon the body. This is interesting. The last days already came because it was the last days of that millennial period. So when Joel said, hey, coming a day, Joel 2, 28, coming a day, fact is in the last days, Father says, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. Joel is a prophet. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh in the last days. And what's going to happen is 
Sons and daughters are going to prophesy. Even women will prophesy. Whoa, there's some feministic liberation right there. Glory to God. Come on. The Bible was the first liberating book on the planet. Lifting up servants, slaves, Gentiles, downtrodden women. The Bible said, no more. in the last days I'm going to pour out my spirit and it's going to blow the minds of everybody. I'm going to cross over the Jordan. I'm going to visit those who are in darkness. Even Naphtali, and what was it? Nebulon. Zebulon. Oh, thank you. I'm going to visit them, right? I'm going to pour out my spirit on those who have been in darkness. And what are they going to do? It says, and they will prophesy. When Peter stands up, the the Holy Spirit is poured out. Fifty days, that's where we get Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church, upon Gentiles, upon the people in the upper room, but then dispensed to those 3,000 that day. Peter preaches that first sermon, and he says, this is what Joel said. These are the last days. This is what Joel said. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and they will prophesy. Now, I submit to you in the last few minutes that I have, how many of you know this is like a giant sermon? We're trying to fit a giant sermon in a teeny little spot. Acts chapter 2, 17. And it shall be in the last days. So Peter stands up. He says, don't question, don't worry, don't wonder what's going on. These people are not drunk as it appears. This is the fulfillment of Joel the prophet. He saw something and he announced it. God does nothing, Amos chapter 3, 7, unless he announces his secret counsel through the prophets. Why? Because he has to have a man to get access into the earth to bring forth. He has to have cooperable people, people who cooperate. Wherever he's got people that cooperate, then the increase of his government can go forth. The increase of his government of peace can go forth wherever there are cooperable people who will yield to Those people actually can become a prophetic people. Did you know you're a prophetic people? I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Verse 18, even on my bond slaves, both men and women, in those days I'll pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now I've got a question for you. Do you prophesy? I got 30 seconds left. So obviously we're going to violate the time constraints of this morning. Just look at somebody and say, it's going to happen. All right. So I got a question for you. Do you prophesy? Because here's, here's the thought for you. I believe that the enemy through, through the ages 
of influence and darkness in the church has removed that emphasis. The enemy has removed that emphasis. The emphasis in today's church is on petition, prayer, supplication, which is all good. It's all good. But the one representing your supplication about culture, about media, about entertainment, about holy would about government, about your school systems, the one listening to your supplication is the supreme man at the right hand of Father. And whatever he hears, he tells you. And whatever he tells you, you're supposed to prophesy. The emphasis of power that came upon The church was not a whiny, hopeless, mealy-mouthed, what are we going to do? Wring your hands, fearful, hiding, quiet, regressive spirit. It was a spirit of power, a spirit of... It was literally a spirit. This, the Holy Spirit that was poured out was a dunamis of power. The word actually is dynamite. And out of dynamite, you shall, every one of you, shall prophesy. Out of the influence of dynamite in your life, you shall prophesy. Prophesy, and, and you're waiting for a goosebump. And God just wants you to hear well and to see well. You're waiting for a revelation that makes your hair stand up and you think that prophecy belongs only to some odd ones that float through the room instead of walk? Can I need the band to help me close? I'm going to stand and try to control myself. Are you with me this morning? Come on, let's stand. This is interesting. I was meditating on Matthew 6, 9, and 10. They said, teach us how to pray. They said, teach us how to pray. And Jesus' response is, pray this way. Kingdom of God come. Will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we study the Greek of that, we see it's an imperative. It's almost a shout instead of a instead of a whining petition. Whatever starts in prayer as petition, supplication, request, even out of Philippians 4 where we make our needs known to God, the word of the Lord comes to visit us so that we begin to prophesy that word over our own future. When we come to God, we're not coming to God for like just this hokey, weird. We're actually coming through Jesus who has the ear of Father and who hears well. And his testimony to you is the spirit of prophecy. 
And when his testimony rests upon your heart, he's giving you the keys to change the future. So even now as we see anarchy and we see trouble and we see fighting and we see racism and we see bigotry and we see $9 trillion in debt and we see this, that, and the other thing, when we see these things, we begin to think even within ourselves according to the word, according to redemptive works, according to the power of the spirit living within us, according to where we're now seated in him and with him in heavenly places. We begin to reflect on that even without goosebumps. Even without special feelings because we don't walk by feelings. We walk by faith. And if we walk by faith, actually faith is rooted in the word. And so, therefore, we begin to engage like Jeremiah. We begin to engage and say, anarchy is stopped in our nation. Peace increases. Peace increases and anarchy is stopped. Lawlessness is stopped in our nation. The working of rebellion in the hearts of men is halted, arrested, and confronted. And the spiritual power of rebellion is overthrown in our nation. Now, what am I doing right there? I'm agreeing with the supreme man who, according to Psalm 15:16, has supreme authority in the earth. He... Of all of us who are included in this leasehold agreement, he is the supreme one. And so when I, when I actually state, when I actually say what he's saying, because he doesn't have a voice except for you. He doesn't have a voice except for you. He doesn't have a voice except for you. The word of Amos 3.7 is still true. He does nothing unless he shows the prophets. Now he's showing the supreme prophet Jesus who testifies in your heart. And when he testifies it in your heart, then you have to be like Jeremiah of old. You have to be one who declares what he's showing you in your heart. Healing comes, health comes, encouragement comes, strength comes, blessing comes, wisdom comes. You begin to declare these things. Our education system, it looks bad right now. It looks like we get, we're teaching some weird things. we got some stuff coming into our schools at, at grade school levels. But you know what? We, begin, we, we say that's turned around right now. Our school districts are taken over by those who love goodness. Our school districts are taken over by those who love righteousness. Our school districts are taken over by those who love truth. Our school districts are taken over by those who actually will focus on education instead of sexual perversion. There's a, there's a movement, there's a change. Something's going on in our schools right now. And we just say the good, the righteous are promoted in our school districts all across the nation. And the unclean, the perverse, those who are right now unified with the enemy are dispossessed, displaced, finding themselves out of office out of office. See, we're defending him too. If he truly is the rightful leader, we actually, with our tongue, are defending his leadership. We're defending his place. There's more, but I got to stop. Come on, lift your hands. I want you to receive this assignment this morning. 
that you are a prophet in your generation. 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 Holy Spirit, we accept right now, we accept the dunamis of Acts 2.17 and its fulfillment. The dunamis of Joel 2.28. We accept that you have anointed us that we might declare your word, the word of Jesus. You have come upon us. You have come within us that we might declare, that we might decree, that we might say, that we might say what we see, that we might decree what we see, that we might be the the mouthpiece of Jesus. We welcome you to do this right now and fully develop the prophetic anointing within us in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen, Amen, Amen. I'm going to ask the prayer team to come up to the front.